As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams. Uh, not here with Andrew Paskin. This is a welcome to the Rugby League Digest off-season as I'm busily preparing the second season of our Super League investigation. We're going to be filling that break with uh, a number of special episodes. We've got some interviews coming up uh, and a number of case studies where we'll be looking at different clubs, different aspects of the Super League war that we've covered in our first season with uh, some different uh, guest interviewees and some experts. And we've got one of those here today. Uh, you may know him as the NRL economist. Uh, it's journalist Rami Haydar. Uh, Rami, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Uh, really excited to have you on. I've, I've greatly enjoyed your work as the NRL economist over the last few months. Uh, everyone should be following you on Twitter, which is now not the NRL economist. It's at uh, Rami underscore Haydar. So that's R-A-M-Y H-A-I D-A-R. Uh, you can also catch Rami on a great podcast, The Front Office, uh, hosted with Steel Sports, Albi Talarico. Both of those things tell me a lot about you in terms of your uh, journalistic angle and your approach to the game. But do you want to just uh, give a bit of detail on where you come in in terms of rugby league media? Yeah. Um, look, my background um, in, in writing spans about 15 or so years. And I've written um, in Inside Sport magazine, Rugby League Week magazine. Uh, I've had pieces in Big League, um, The Telegraph and so forth. But uh, when it comes to my writing angle and my writing style, it the main uh, angle that I push is the business of sport. So trying to look at things from a data-based mindset and in general, trying to debunk some myths and you know, pretty much a lot of the content that I push out there has very little emotion behind it and just rather raw, cold, hard facts. One of my main takeaways from reading your work and, and listening to your podcast is you mentioned debunking myths and it's kind of going against the grain of some of the, um, you know, stereotypes in, in rugby league media and the way the game's covered more broadly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you got to keep in mind that journalists in general have two backgrounds in rugby league, and that is they're either a player or they weren't. So if we're going to respect the um, the profession of journalism, we need to keep in mind that it's its own separate profession. And being a player, being a coach in the past doesn't necessarily uh, ensure that you're going to be a successful journalist, um, as we've seen, you know, across all forms of media, particularly in television. So I've 
brought you here today uh, to do one of our case studies, uh, which will be the Brisbane Broncos. But before we get to that, I just want to uh, get your background as a rugby league fan and, and some general thoughts about Super League. So where does rugby league start for you? Oh, look, born and raised in it. Uh, basically, my father uh, encouraged us to support the Newtown Jets. That was the family team until they uh, exited. Uh, but for me, my team was always the um, Canterbury Bulldogs. And it was interesting because w- when you reached out and, and offered me the opportunity to come on here and uh, you said to me, look, choose any team, any team that you want. And, you know, my childhood um, growing up and, and, and seeing the way that the Broncos ran their organization, they were such a slick organization. In fact, I, I kind of viewed them a little bit like the um, WWF back in the days, that, that wrestling organization. It was just so professionally run. It was... Hollywood, it was showbiz. And the Brisbane Broncos, they they exhibited all of those traits of the American franchises. So they captured my heart. I always wanted my team, the Bulldogs, to be just like those Broncos. Uh, but yeah, it was their, it was their slick sort of um, image that, that captured me. And I just I just think that they were, they've been the best thing for rugby league, particularly in the last uh, four decades. It's funny because growing up, they, they were a you know, much-hated team, uh, in Sydney, as a St George fan, I lost two grand finals to them. Mm. So I sh- I should hate them, but I never hated them the way I hate hated and continue to hate other clubs. And I think a lot of that is for the reason uh, that you've outlined that they, in an age where not much about rugby league was professional or well run, they were slick, they were professional, and it, it was hard to hate that. Yeah, definitely. Um, you got to keep in mind that. When uh, an organization comes in and performs in such a manner that is so different to what used to be the case, that that demands respect. It demands that sort of authority that they've got. And, you know, I think based on that, even though they were so dominant over many of those Sydney clubs across the 90s particularly, uh, you had to respect them. And that just meant that you couldn't you just could not hate the club. You had this just enduring respect for how good they were. And a lot of the criticism seems mired in these really old rugby league attitudes. So it's the notion that we've covered um, over the course of our Superling investigation of the attitude of bringing them down to the back to the pack. It's not how can we be as good as them? How can we get our business in order? It's, it's not fair that they're run so well. They should be a basket case like us. The way it was always talked about was, you know, oh, you know, they've got all of Queensland to build off, you know, and you know, it'd be easy for for my team if there weren't eight other Sydney teams, and they're kind of answering their own question in in the way they frame their criticism. Yeah, let's keep in mind that in the eighties, who's to say that the Parramatta Eels, who's to say that the Canterbury Bulldogs, who's to say that the St George Dragons couldn't perform the way the Broncos did by luring these Queenslanders down south. The, the the capacity was always there. A few clubs did it, but not obviously to the degree that they could have. The Canberra Raiders uh, cottoned on to the fact that, you know, they could leverage off the back of these talented Queenslanders. And, you know, a lot of their success was off the back of that. But the idea is that when a team comes in, they're a new team in 1988, and they come in and they do things not better, they do things differently. They were different, and that kind of caused a bit of friction with a lot of the management here. And when I say here, I'm referring to Sydney. So, you know, when it comes down to it, teams like the Broncos, they were so good because they were different, not better, but different. 
And I want to talk about those differences, uh, particularly their entry into the competition shortly. Uh, before we get too deep into the weeds, I just want to uh, go back to 1995. Where were you and what did you think about Super League at the time? Look, in 1995, I'd, I'd actually uh, just gone through a bit of a health complication. And so I was a bit sort of, because look, as a young kid, um, I was obsessed with media. So whether that was getting the local paper and reading up on you know the, um, the the rugby league news or getting the Telegraph or the Big League or the Rugby League Week, it didn't end. That's that's where all my pocket money went. Um, that's how passionate I was for for rugby league and, and the media of rugby league in particular. So in 1995, um, I was going through a bit of a complication, so I wasn't in in tune and in touch with all the goings on at the time. But what I do know is that there was this bit of a social sort of um, divide when it came to Super League and ARL. And I kind of sensed that you were pigeonholed as either one or the other. And I kind of, just like everything else in my life, I sat back and I thought, well, I'm neither, right? I just want to see how this thing plays out. I don't want to necessarily decide that I want to take a particular side, so to speak. Uh, Well, you're one of the very few to not take a side uh, at that period of time. So let, let's go back to, to 1988 and the, the Broncos entering the comp. It's, it's been talked about by both the ARL and some of the Broncos administration that just their very intri- entry into the competition set the game on the, the collision path to Super League. You had a business model that was so fundamentally different to the other 15 clubs combined with, on the Broncos side, a certain arrogance that their success built into that institution and a combativeness that they took to the ARL. On the ARL side, a very Sydney-centric focus and a very typically rugby league suspiciousness of outsiders. So I I wonder if you've given any thought into that aspect of the Broncos' business model and whether that was ever going to be compatible with a, you know, one-for-all approach of the ARL. Well, look, a, a couple of points to that. Uh, the first is that perception of arrogance. Um, it depends on your perspective, just like anything in life. And you got to consider that the Brisbane Broncos' entry and the way that they, uh, you know, the way that they demonstrated their business practices, a lot of people were quite upset with. A lot of people, you know, that it rubbed them up the wrong way. And basically, it was just because it was different, right? And and they came in with an air of confidence. So. I look at it from the perspective of confidence. They were a confident team that knew what they wanted. They knew what they wanted to get to. And to be quite frank, if you were a fan of the Manly Seagulls and the Brisbane Broncos coming into the competition and being successful, that actually is of a benefit to you if you're a Seagulls fan. The competition, rugby league is stronger for their entry. Rugby league is better for their success. So that that's that first um, uh, part of your question. And and the second part, in terms of how they were modelled, you got to remember that when they first came in, they were actually modelled on their American counterparts, the Denver Broncos. So a lot of their operational traits were adopted into their business practices. Uh, but look, just to keep in mind, um, before they actually adopted that Colorado-based uh, team example of the Denver Broncos, they were actually set for another equine title, and that was the Brisbane Brumbies. Mm. So look, teams, they adopt mascots based on a historical emotional connection. But you know, at that time, um, a funny sort of aspect was the uh, idea of alliteration. You know, the teams, they had to exhibit some form of alliteration in their name. And you know, it just so happened to be that you know, the Broncos, they, they, they had to have the echo of a B. So um, out came the Brisbane Broncos. And do you think that's a statement of intent right there, opting for the Broncos as opposed to the Brumbies? 
I think so. Um, it, without trying to uh, over-psychologize it in, in a sense, the fact that they went out and they chose an American term, an American brand, um, and adopted it into an quintessentially Australian game of rugby league, that, that it stands to reason that from day one, they always saw themselves as different. And the fact is that when they came into the competition with that American branding of the Broncos, despite the fact that many you know traditional fans or purists weren't very happy with them, everyone was interested. It done the trick. It done the job. And those th- those differences, it, it's beyond the cosmetic. You can see it in the way that from the start they were battling the QRL. They were battling the the Lang Park Trust. So for us in Sydney, it's easy to see the Broncos as Brisbane as Queensland Rugby League, but internally there was a battle there as well. And even in Queensland, they were something different and something uh, outside the establishment. Yeah, look, um, in terms of non-conformance, in terms of defying tradition, they were the experts. And of course, you're always going to get that sort of blowback even from within Queensland. But in the overwhelming majority, the overwhelming majority of Queenslanders actually did support them. And regardless of whether they were in Brisbane or, or further up north. One of the things that could have gone a long way to easing some of that tension between the league and the Broncos was what eventually happened in 1995 with the ARL becoming the controlling body as opposed to New South Wales Rugby League. You think maybe that should have happened in 1988. Once you have Queensland teams entering the comp, it stands to reason that there should be a more national focus. And it seems that keeping it Sydney-centric, keeping it New South Wales Rugby League controlled... And, you know, largely keeping the Broncos off those, you know, controlling committees and the subcommittees and all the conflict that happened in the next couple of years, it it feels the ARL could have done themselves some favours by reaching out a bit more and being more inclusive of Brisbane. Yeah, um, my take on it is, is slightly adjacent to that, and that is that rugby league works in patterns, just like everything in life. History repeats itself in particular cycles. So the cycle that rugby league um, experiences across all of those decades that it's been in existence is that passion grows for the game. It grows and it grows and people become more emotionally attached to their team. Eventually, that passion gets corporatized. Money comes in. And when that money comes in, in a sense, for the next few years, that passion dilutes. It seems to be the case again and again. So... The fact that the Broncos came in, as much as we'd like to think of it as a consequence of this fantastic administration that decided that the way ahead was, you know, to um, incorporate a Brisbane team. No, it was money. Money was the driving factor, just like it always is in rugby league. And it can only ever come into existence. It only ever appears when there's enough passion to uh, facilitate, facilitate it. So the idea is that when the money comes in, the passion dilutes. So how then do you think it would have worked if maybe instead of this new entity, you had like, you know, Brisbane Brothers, East Tigers, whatever it might have been, like one or two existing clubs being invited into the New South Wales Rugby League as opposed to a completely new entity? Yeah, it it was a very unique situation because you had um, no Brisbane team in there in the first place. So if you were going to just identify just simply the one team, um, you're probably most likely you were going to disen- disenchant quite a few um, supporters up in Brisbane. So th- it was the right model to choose, most definitely, and the success in the following years has proven that to be the case. Well, I know you've done a lot of analysis on the Broncos' on-field 
throughout the 90s. So maybe it's a good time to turn to that. Can you just, in broad terms, maybe just um, put into words their rise as an on-field football force, you know, starting in the 90s and, and going through to whenever? Yeah, definitely. Look, um, obviously in the 80s, they were only around for a couple of years. So um, th- their record there, it, it's it's a bit difficult to sort of uh, look at it from a macro perspective, but their win rate across those two years was 62%. Now, where that shot up was the 1990s. The 1990s, they, their win rate was over 70.9%. That's massive. That ranked them first across that decade. And in fact, that ranked them first across many decades. So the only team that actually beats their record across the last six decades is that very, very um, powerful and, and, and recognized esteemed team of the Dragons in the 1960s. So their win rate across the 60s was just over 76%. The Broncos in the 90s, just under 71%. That shows you, that sort of puts it in context in terms of how strong, how powerful their record was in that particular decade of the 90s. And it's funny because they had that between 90, you know, they won in 93 and again with Super League in 97. The the years in between these kind of almost lost seasons where they were making the semifinals, but certainly 94, 95, there was a a hint of a, a spent force about them where they still had the aura, still had a lot of regular season success, but they didn't have that invincibility that they built up in, in winning the comp. Yeah, just like a wave, I guess. They, they had their peak and trough, but uh, for those couple of years, there was a bit of a, a, a downward sort of turn, but um, they got a few new juniors coming through the system again, and, and yet again, we saw that spike in 97 and 98. Um, but just to give you a, a bit more detail in terms of that record of the 90s, Currently, we'd say the most successful team in the last decade is the Melbourne Storm, and even their success rate in that decade is at is at sixty nine percent. So even the Melbourne Storm can't match what the Broncos were in the nineties. That's how successful they were. The other thing is this, and, and this is where I've sort of trolled through the data. And the nineties, the nineties, the Canberra Raiders were considered the ultimate slick attacking machine, right? So in terms of their attack, they actually scored more points in the nineties than the Broncos did, but. That didn't make sense to me because from where I sat, the Broncos were a far better attacking team. I went in a bit deeper and I realized, hold on a second, the Broncos have actually scored more tries than the Canberra Raiders in the 90s. And in fact, it was just their poor goal-kicking record that brought it right down. They've got one of the worst goal-kicking rates in history. So as a team, they've never valued that art of goal-kicking. It's very much an undervalued skill in rugby league. And um, so, look, they're all-time ladder position, average ladder position across every year they've ever been in the competition across every round is 4.9. So on average, they rank in the top five. Mm. And that's only behind the Melbourne Storm's um, average. And let's keep in mind the Melbourne Storm have been in the competition for far less years. So have, have you looked into the, the goal-kicking thing in any depth? Like, Do you have any data or stats on that? Yeah, yeah, definitely I do. Um, so uh, in terms of the Broncos, their all-time average – all-time is at 70.1%. And um, if I compare that to, as an example, the Canterbury Bulldogs, and I've collated their average at the same time, so since 1988, since the Broncos' entry, because obviously it wouldn't be fair to use you know the all-time Bulldogs' average. So since 88, in the same time period, their average sits at 74.46%. And so that difference of 4.3%, even though it looks trivial, Consider that if the Broncos had the Bulldogs strike rate, they would have scored an extra 350 points. 
350 points. So, you know, their main goal kickers of the 90s were Terry Madison, Darren Lockyer, Julian O'Neill, Willie Kahn, and Wally Lewis. They were their main kickers. And I kid you not, Wally Lewis's strike rate was 44%. Willie Kahn, 61 Julian O'Neill, 68. Darren Lockyer, 67. Terry Madison, 64. These were their full-time kickers. Wow. And they just put up with it because they were so good on the pitch scoring so many tries. <laughs> well, you, you wonder if Hazem had, had been at the Broncos where they'd be. Oh, mate, can you, can you imagine a Daryl Halligan or a Matthew Ridge? So, look um, – and and the thing is, it was endemic in, in their sort of way of thinking because they actually had a decent kicker in Michael DeVee, right? His his strike rate was 9% better than Darren Lockyer's. But yet he only took over from the kicking duties from Darren from the year 2000 onwards. So, you know, for three years, you had a kicker that was a 9% better goal kicker, but yet they maintained Darren Lockyer. So you got to remember that when it comes to the importance of goal kicking, it, it's valuable because you've got about a third of games that finish within six points or less. So having you know the a reliable goal kicker, having one in your team, it, even though it's considered a bonus, it's actually a crucial skill that's um, undervalued. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a little story about something that happened in the early '90s. Um, the the late great Peter Moore, and um, what happened was. He had Ewan McGrady in his team, you know, star player, you know, superstar, length of the field tries and so forth. And he needed his tries to be converted from four to six. So there was a particular fixture that happened um, in 93. All right. So in this match, it was it was a cold midwinter's day. There was 20,000 in attendance and the Bulldogs were leading 17-0. Eventually, after half time, the, uh, the Bears came back and won 18-17. And they actually got back off the back of their own super boot, uh, a winger for the Bears that was just landing these these shots at golf from from all corners. So uh, Peter Moore, you know, he decided, you know, he wanted to target a, a, a goal kicking winger um, from the Bears. And, and who am I speaking of? Daryl Halligan, of course. Uh, it was actually Craig Makepeace. Oh, what? Yes. So Craig Makepeace was actually the winger that day that was shooting him from all corners. And believe it or not, Daryl Halligan was sitting in the grade just below. And um, Peter Moore saw his target. He realized, hold on, well, Craig Makepeace is um, in first grade. They've got a kicker that's just as good in the lower grade. And, and he decided to target Chuck Halligan. Um, look, he actually ignored some legal threats from Bears management at the time. Um, and he came across to the Bulldogs. And, you know, the, he preferred the professionalism of uh, Chris Anderson over Peter Louis at that time. So... You know, Halligan eventually came across, you know, he helped make four become six. And before you know it, there was another young winger coming through in 1998. Um, and he scored on debut at his beloved Belmore. I speak, of course, of who? Hasan El Masri? No, <laughs> Gavin Lester. So Gavin Lester was actually um, playing on the wing for the Bulldogs and Hazemel Masri, actually in his first few years, people don't remember that he actually wasn't the goal kicker at all. Mm. Um, he wasn't kicking and... What happened was Gavin Lester was um, selected in first grade by Steve Folks because he was much speedier. Okay, he was a much faster player, and you know even Hasmul Masri identified that the art of goal kicking was of more value than speed. So he developed his kicking. So if you've got Peter Moore, if you've got Hasmul Masri identifying the importance of goal kicking, I, I think it's high time our administrators of, of you know these clubs realize you know the just the, how undervalued a skill it is. Absolutely. But I, I think just to touch on Hazem very, very briefly, because we've got other things to talk about, uh, it, it's, I think he played something like 100 games before he was the, the dog's regular goal kicker. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually researching the, the 96 where he was coming through the grades. 
there was a lot of, you know, there'd be a little aside in the rugby league week, keep an eye on this uh, young Bulldogs winger, Hazem El Masri. And that was not based on his goal kicking. That was talking about Hazem as a player, as a winger. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, he, he was in the same squad as Halligan um, for five years. Mm. You know, five years, half a decade, you had Halligan and El Masri, probably, probably the two all-time great goal kickers um, in the same team. So, yeah, El Masri was in the squad um, playing first grade at, at the time because when he first shot into the grade, he was actually um, uh, a lot quicker than, you know, eventually he slowed down later in his career, but he was a big stepper. He had a lot of, um, he actually had a, a left and right foot step and, you know, he, he bamboozled defenders quite often and, um, yeah, he shot through the grades. He was playing back in the era, it was the President's Cup and he was quite brilliant back then and the fans really got on the back of him, you know, sort of, you know, based on, you know, his ethnic background and the majority of the Bulldogs fans that were on the hill there were of the same sort of descent. So, he had a lot of support. He had a lot of fans and, um, you know, he, he came a long way since then. The great Hazem. I want to go back to what you said about not valuing goal kickers. Is, is, there any, is there any way of measuring that? Like, have you looked at whether that's a particularly Wayne Bennett uh, attitude? Like, has that followed him to other clubs? or um, The way I perceive it is goal kicking has never been valued from day one. So over time, what happens is when a team needs those extra crucial one percenters, they've turned to you know trying to um, recruit a, a high quality goal kick. But the idea is that the Broncos were so successful, they were so good, they never needed to think outside the square. They never needed those extras. So their success in scoring the most tries, it just eventually it just meant that you know goal kicking was an afterthought. Um, in terms of their average four in the nineties, that their average per game was 24.36 points, mm. that which is just an amazing record. In terms of average points against, it was only 14.4. So there's another undervalued attribute of that Broncos team of the 90s where their defense was just, it was superb. With that attack though, you had the, the benefit of some of the greatest attacking players we've ever seen, the likes of Steve Renoff, you know, Alan Langer at, at halfback, these you know Wendell Saylor emerging as like a dominant winger do you think it's they got lucky with some of these all-time greats or was there something built in to the organization or the coach whatever it might be where where do you put that I I personally don't think that it's luck you can't get luck to such a degree but rather it's a reflection of the culture that they built in that club from day one they just had an amazing culture and it was a culture centered around the idea of them being a glamour club. They were the glamour club. And um, I actually looked up the etymology of that term, glamour, and it's actually Scottish. And it actually means magic. And in a sense, that's what their players were. They were magic. Seeing the pearl run down that sideline, as, as much as I know, it must have broken your heart, uh, you know, seeing him, <laughs> you know, score that length of the field try in that grand final. Um, the idea is that their players were just so magically talented. They were just so good and the club was built around that idea and identity of glamour and magic. Well, looking at it in a Super League context, it, it goes back to what I'm talking about of the rugby league attitude of, of bringing them back to the pack where glamour club in rugby league terms is used almost derisively. But really, what was stopping a, a Sydney club from having that sustained success over the decade? We saw Manly had a, a great few years in the mid-90s, you know, Penrith started the decade. Well, you know, there's been other teams that have done it for a few years, but 
Was there something that other clubs could have done in Sydney or was it about the imbalance of the markets and, and those advantages that the Broncos had? I think it comes down to the culture within the organization. And if you've got a team like, let's say, for instance, the Penrith Panthers that are looking at the Broncos and they done well in the early 90s, let's not forget they were quite successful. And they look at the Broncos and they say, well, that's not fair the way that they're operating and they seem to be dominating the um, player market, the player transfers, and um, they're just doing so well year in, year out. But the Panthers had the opportunity to do the same thing. Any organization has the ability to adopt particular traits, particular cultures into their organization. It's just their choice in not doing so. So, and often a lot of the times it, it's based on the, it's based on labels that we assign to particular teams. So I'll give you an example. For instance, the chocolate soldiers, who am I referring to? Penrith. So the Panthers being the chocolate soldiers, a lot of the times people assume that's referring to their um, poor playing style or lack of defense, you know, on the field. But it's actually, its origins are from the fact that their original committeemen used to sort of strut around, you know, with a bit of an ego, an air of arrogance, wearing their brown blazers. And so that's where the term was coined, chocolate soldiers. And that goes back again to that, the clash between the the old rugby league values and this new different force coming in in the Broncos. I guess what I really want to, to know is whether it was replicable in Sydney, whether an organisation could be run the way the Broncos were run. Do you think it was just a matter of getting the right front office in place at that point in time? Yeah, absolutely I do. Because when you've got the right people running your organization, you've got the right leaders, almost like a, um, a gravitational pull. They can get the, that middle management. They can get their coaches. They can get their players to all be going in that same direction. So it's about leadership. And leadership and excellence is not about being better, as we said earlier. It's about being different. Uh, something which, if you want to talk about Sydney clubs that behave and perform slightly differently, I guess the closest example of a Sydney club that um, manage themselves in that Brisbane Broncos style, and I'm not saying that they, they were like them, but that, that even slightly resembled the Broncos was the Canterbury Bulldogs. And, and that was through you know the, the likes of Peter Moore, who was just ruthless. He was always someone that was willing to do anything for the success of his club and work outside the square and, and, and in a sense, work you know, around the rules. It's funny because something that really stuck out to me in doing the Super League research was an anecdote about when Brad Fittler was deciding what he was going to do about um, you know signing an ARL contract and having his team sign with Super League. Uh, and he related that earlier in his career, Phil Gould had given him the advice that if he was ever going to leave Penrith, a player of his stature should only consider three clubs, the Broncos, the Bulldogs, and Manly. Uh, he, of course, went to the Roosters uh, and put that to Phil Gould, who was then Roosters coach, and Phil Gould said, well, we're going to be better than the lot of them. And, you know, the subsequent couple of decades has kind of borne out what, what Phil Gould said then. But but it's definitely like a reputation that the Bulldogs had at that time and for some years other was... a a very sound front office and and you can see the results on the field as a result of that. Yeah, it's always about the front office and Jack Gibson didn't get it wrong by, you know, proclaiming all those years ago winning or success always begins in the front office. So when we say the front office, we're not necessarily referring to the very obvious, the bleeding obvious, you know, have a great CEO, have a great chair of your organisation. Rather, the front office actually means the front office itself. So even if that means your administrative staff at the very front, 
right? Everyone working in the same direction, everyone working cohesively because, you know, sports economists across the globe, they've identified the key determinant of on-field success is cohesion. But cohesion isn't just an on-field thing, but rather it's also inclusive of management, it's inclusive of coaching, it's inclusive of scouting. And when we say scouting, scouting doesn't necessarily mean um, scouting the best players, but it can also mean scouting the deficiencies in the opposition and you know where to target that opposition. So all of these you know parts of an organization working cohesively, driving that success of the club. Can you give any specifics of the Broncos in the 90s as to how that cohesion worked? What were the elements that made them such a a strong front office? Well, first things first, John Rebo, despite the many claims against him as, you know, one of the architects of the Super League and all this negativity towards him, I think he is one of the all-time greats of rugby league. Besides the fact that he played the game, besides the fact that, you know, he, he, he was involved in this vision for Super League, he was behind the success of the most important club of the last few decades in rugby league, and that is the Brisbane Broncos. So the way that he ran his organization, as we keep repeating, was different. He had that vision. And it stands to reason that traditionalists, purists of the game will look at someone like him at that time in that era and say, well, who's this bloke that's just come out of nowhere? Who is this guy you know, planning to change our game, like there's this sense of ownership, this is our game. But rather, he was actually contributing. And it just depends on the perspective that you look at in terms of how you want to assess and identify, you know, whether he was, a, a, you know, a, a positive for the game or not. He certainly, in my research and, and our discussion of him, one of the most impressive individual figures in that period in, in, in the Super League war with the, the glaring caveat of the botched execution of of Super League. Like it, it was a strategic mistake the way the, the April Fool's Day raid played out, which from then on really undermined the concept and made it very hard for the wider public to get behind it. He was quite unfairly vilified as a result. But I, I kind of stand with you that like I think he was a game first person. The problem was he was also running the Broncos before Super League. And some of that tension came from the fact that he was, you know, going down to Sydney on the the Premiership Policy Committee, doing the best to push the case for the Broncos, which was seen as not uh, always best for the game. To me, it's it's very hard to run an organisation effectively if it's being run by representatives from clubs who who were there to do the best for their club there's always going to be that perception of conflict of interest. And in a sense, that does prejudice your capacity to perform your duties. But he had no choice. He had no choice. His his contributions were directed at trying to grow the game. It was directed at trying to make the game better, more professional, and, and let's go back to the very beginning, more American. Okay, so that visionary, that entrepreneurial style is something that many traditional fans... Um, it just it, it causes friction. People don't like it because we see ourselves as a very quintessential Aussie game. And that's what it is. The, the game is Australian, but the method to corporatize it, it should not be Australian, okay? Because unless we're looking at a game that wants to be run with the style of 50s management, we did need to adopt that American style and, and try to have a bit of a vision 
for the code. And, you know, it's funny, we look at the AFL today, you know, trying to push into China. But if you go back in time and what was John Rebo's vision, it was always headed in that direction. Yeah. That leads us nicely to one of the other big conflicts of interest, which is that the Brisbane Brisbane were set up from the start as a money-making venture, which was at odds to how every other club was run in 1988. How, what's your summation of, of that conflict? Uh, look, what does it matter? Why, why is it important? Why is it a negative that the Broncos are a publicly listed company? How in any way does that um, result in them being um, a negative on the, on the game? How does that result in the Brisbane Broncos performing any better than another club unfairly? It stands to reason that the ownership structure is a choice, okay? And so long as you've got the procedures in place so the organizations are run on an equal footing, on an equal basis. So, for instance, the salary cap. The salary cap is a competitive balance tool and it results in teams, whether they're publicly listed or otherwise, performing on a like-for-like basis. So I've got no issue with the Broncos being publicly listed. I don't think that it's um, a negative on the game at all. And if anything, it could actually be a bit of a hindrance to them in the sense that they need to sort of adopt a bit more of a corporate guidelines type of approach in their media dealings. So one of the tensions between the league and the Broncos was the Broncos saying, well, we're professionally run, we want to run this as a business. Um, why should we be penalised? You know, one of the early conflicts was about merchandising where the league had adopted this kind of all-in policy where the proceeds of the merchandise was kind of distributed and the Broncos were not wanting to be a part of that. One of John Quayle's criticisms of the or counters to that line of thinking was that, well, you can be a successful business, but where are you without without other teams to play against? So where do you see that balance being? Uh, Look, I definitely agree with that second part of your point. So I'll go back a few years now. Um, I was in a private discussion with a particular chairman of a Sydney Sydney club and he actually made the point and and he stressed it um, very strongly. And he said, look, the clubs are the game and without each other, we've got nothing. So in a sense, if you have no competitors, that leads you to being the sole organization. as I said earlier, the Manly Seagulls, right? Their fans, they are better off for having a strong Brisbane Broncos team in the organi- in the uh, rugby league. So I I do sort of adopt that philosophy of uh, you know clubs united definitely. And do you think from the other side of it, do you think that there was a way that the other Sydney clubs, the other league, uh, and the league could have not been so focused on what the Broncos were doing and just gone along with their business? Like the way I see it, it's the way it played out. It seems like. The Broncos entering was always going to lead to Super League because of those corporate differences. But do you see a world where it didn't necessarily lead to that? Um, yeah, I don't think that the entry of the Broncos uh, necessitated the um, introduction of the Super League. I, I think the Super League was always going to come along in some form, in some format, in some version. So long as the code engendered that passion, the money was always going to come towards it. And when it does, it's going to offer the people involved, a viable alternative. So I'm not surprised that we went down the Super League route, we went down the Super League path, but I don't subscribe to the theory that the Broncos' entry in 1988 necessitated um, the Super League, but rather I think the Super League was always coming so long as the game had that passion, that had that hunger from fans. 
So just to get back to the the front office, uh, you, you know, you've mentioned John Rabo. Were, were there any other individuals or any other elements of the way the Broncos were run that you think led itself to success? Yeah, look, they had a very confident mindset. Whoever was speaking, particularly to the media, always spoke with an air of confidence. And if you juxtapose that with the modern-day Broncos that we see today, I mean, I'll give you an example. This is just a very micro-level example, and I understand it's just it's just a very small thing, but I view it as reflective upon a, a sick type of culture that's developed at the modern version of the Broncos and that is that their media manager actually sent me a message justifying you know their loss their 59 nil loss to the Roosters uh, off the back of you know a lack of experience so I actually sent him back my data which showed that no there were four other clubs that had less experience than they did and those four other clubs are quite successful this year so inclusive of you know the Canberra Raiders South Sydney Rabbitohs uh, Cronulla Sharks and Penrith Panthers so the response was dead silence okay so don't don't contact journalists with these false theories justifying poor performances, in fact, don't contact them at all. Like, stop justifying yourself. You don't need to. You're, you're the glamour club. You're the Broncos. And the quicker you return to that mindset, the quicker your performances will return to the magic of the 90s. So, you know, when it comes to the front office of the Broncos back in the day, they, they performed, they spoke, they behaved with an air of confidence, something which traditionalists might call arrogance. And what about the coach? You know, Wayne Bennett has has taken a lot of knocks in in the last few years, but certainly at the time uh, was you know he was almost handpicked by Jack Gibson in nineteen eighty eight. Had incredible success throughout the nineties and was al- almost untouchable at that time. You never heard a word against him, and he was widely considered one of the best, if not the best, coach of all time. Uh, where do you see him then, and and where do you see his legacy overall? Okay, well, let, let's compare. So you've got most modern coaches. They use video, data, statistics, and they use that to drive their tactics. So in contrast, the Broncos' inaugural coach, uh, Wayne Bennett, he employs interpersonal skills, and he does that to extract the fullest potential from his players. So he'll use charm, aura, charisma. That's his modus operandi. If you want to go back to how he got employed there, he actually overcame six applicants to get the position in 1988. But in order to lure uh, Bennett from the Canberra Raiders, he was offered full control of the recruitment, retention, and selections. And that was free from the interference of committee men. So the thing was, there were there were many applicants, but they knew who they wanted, and they got him. And he's, he's a bit of a coaching savant, and his accompanying premierships, they're long gone. And the team now, they're mentored by Anthony Seabold, who's actually an educator by trade. So, you know, he's, he's a teacher, and Let's keep in mind the teaching degree is undervalued in coaching. He's actually copped a fair bit of criticism for his background as a teacher. But if you think about it, back in the days, Warren Ryan, Roy Masters, there's Hasler. They're just a few of the most inventive rugby league coaches. And they've all got a history and a background as a chalky. So that gives them the capacity to differentiate the message dependent on the learner or, or, or the footballer, depending on how you want to perceive it. And they can convey their message in a way that, you know, that, that player is going to adopt it and, and totally understand it. So back to Wayne Bennett, his style is all about charisma. And I've been doing a bit of research lately on leadership, captaincy, and coaching. And across the globe, all the best coaches, all of them, like if you want to sort of paint a picture in your head right now of Sir Alex Ferguson from Manchester United, and picture him sitting in the stands watching his you know, beloved Red Devils playing on the pitch at Old Trafford. And what was he doing? 
He had his arms folded. He might have even had his legs crossed. Why? Because his job was done. His job was finished before the on-field started. And all of the most all of the greatest coaches across the globe have always had that common trait. And that is that they do their job and then they have enough faith and trust in their on-field leadership to do the rest of the job in the game because there's nothing that you're going to do uh, sitting on the sideline or up in the stand that's going to change what's going to happen on the pitch once they walk out on there. And so do you see a through line with that to, you know, the, I guess it's Craig Bellamy and and Trent Robinson are the the two most successful and most widely, you know, regarded rugby league coaches today. Do you see that same attitude, those same skills in them? Yeah. Um, One thing is, if you want to use a word that um, really covers all elements of Trent Robinson, you'd use the word temperament and his temperament is superb. So he he walks around, he holds himself, he composes himself to such a degree that it's quite rare to see any stress, any you know animated movements from him. He's basically in control and that filters through to his players. They see that confidence. He's always in control regardless of the scoreline. And you know, I understand that Craig Bellamy can sort of lose it, you know, behind that 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 screen and and we've all seen him in in the footage spitting across that window. But the thing is he he performs in a slightly different way. His style is different, just like players have a different playing style. His style is a bit more animated, a bit more aggressive, but he also has the respect of his players, right? And he's built that over the years. He didn't come in spitting and screaming straight away, okay? That wasn't his style from day one, but he earned that trust, he earned that respect, and now he's earned that right to behave that way, the way that he does. I don't like it, but he's earned the right to do mm. it. So, you know, you compare that to some other styles and it's it's not a surprise to see the likes of, for instance, um, and I know this might upset you, but Brian Smith, the way that he performed, I'm not surprised that his teams didn't win a premiership because if you think of it, you know, some of the um, the, the methods and, and tactics that were used were just not appropriate in terms of engendering trust in your players. The other thing is I've got this enduring memory of seeing him um, in the preliminary final when he was coaching the Roosters and just this, um, you know, jumping up and down and excitement on the sidelines, um, you know, upon his, his Roosters winning that semifinal and knowing that they're about to head into their grand final. And it just, it sent the wrong message. It sent the wrong message that, you know, it was time to get excited. The, the, the job was done. And, you know, a clever coach, they can compose themselves. They'll be sitting up in the stands with arms folded, knowing that they've put enough work into their team, put enough work into their captaincy to lead on the field themselves. So I remember that moment so clearly. He was mugging to the camera and he, he mouthed, he put one yes. finger up, mouthed yes. one more, which kind of, you know, at base level says the job's not done, but, you know, we've got one more game to win. But why are you looking at the camera in the first place? You yes. know, forget about it. Absolutely. Um, and so there was a there was a, a bit of a conflict between, you know, his, him saying one more, sticking his finger up in the camera. But, um, you know, there's great big um, uh, smile and jumping up and down. And, you know, it, it, it wasn't befitting of a first-grade coach, particularly one that it wasn't his first grand final, you know, particularly one who's so experienced. Now, in saying all that, I'm, I'm not in any way denigrating, you know, the success that he achieved across his years. You know, any player that can actually break into first grade and play one first-grade game is a supremely talented athlete. Any coach that can ever get into those coaching ranks is supremely talented. So in no way is this a you know a, a basher Brian Smithathon, so to speak. But rather to say 
that's that one percent difference. That's that one percent difference between the good and the great. Because as I say, you know, um, the enemy of of, of great is good. So go, going back to Bennett, where does he fit in then in terms of the organisation? Do you consider him as a coach part of that front office then? I think they gave him his role and they sat back. Okay, so if you you know if we even just go back in, in terms of what I said earlier about um, he was recruited to coach the team but he was offered full control of recruitment, full control of retention and selections, and it was free from the interference of their committeemen. So he had full control. They delegated the role, they delegated the task to him, and they left him to his own accord so he could perform it in his way. He's a very unique character, and um, you know his psychological state, the way that he acts socially is, is very unique to most other coaches. And if you you know watch him very closely in his press conferences, you'll notice that he seems to be very narrow in his responses, and I think it's a reflection of his uh, psychological mindset. The big thing for me on that is doing what he did in the early 90s of moving the club on from Wally Lewis or moving Wally Lewis on from the club. Like what other – and you have to remember at that time he'd taken – you know, he'd won comps in, in the Brisbane competition. He'd taken Canberra to a grand final – but he hadn't had, and the Broncos had obviously done very well for a new club, but he didn't have the runs on the board at that stage. There was already whispers of, is he the answer long term? To have the balls to to do that, to make that move, the the god of Queensland to to just move him on and then back it up by winning the comp you know, a year or so later, it seems that there wouldn't be too many coaches at that point in time who would have had the strength and the confidence to do that. Look, um, Wayne Bennett has a modus operandi that seems to keep repeating itself regardless of which club he's at, regardless of the decade or era that he's coaching in. So his his method, his approach is to go into an organization, pick out someone who he perceives might be not so much a threat to his authority but unlikely to listen to his message because let's remember, success is all about cohesion. It's about unifying your organizational members, whether that be on the field or off it, and all pushing in the same direction. And if you've got someone in the organization that's got such massive authority, massive credibility like Wally Lewis, it probably would work in your favor to have him removed. And, you know, he had an opportunity, Wally. He had an opportunity to stay. Let's not forget that. Before he got pushed out of the club, he was actually shifted to lock forward. Okay, and he still didn't perform. And then he got shifted to the bench and he still didn't perform. So, you know, I, I'm hardly going to start now um, blaming Wayne Bennett for pushing, you know, the great Wally Lewis out of their club. What did he achieve post Broncos? And, and I speak of Wally Lewis. What did he achieve? Yeah, very little. Yeah. So, you know, his history has proven that, you know, it was the right decision to make. And the other thing is about Wayne Bennett's style. He, he recognizes that a team needs fantastic players that are consistent and so forth, but he also recognizes that your team needs just a very, very small sprinkling of what I term stardust type of players. Those players with that magic that, you know, they've got certain elements of their game that aren't quite up to scratch. It might be their defense. It might be, you know, their, their uh, demeanor. It might be some, you know, off-field sort of negative things that they've done. But he is happy to disregard that. He's happy to still have them in their team for the sake of the the, the magic that they can bring. So if you go back over the years, there's been a, a high proportion of those players in his teams that are of Indigenous background. So he recognizes that, you know, these players, they bring that bit of magic that you need, whether it be, um, you know, Steve Renoff or, or anyone else. Yeah. Uh, 
I know this this is probably the point in the podcast where we're supposed to start trashing him, but I, I, I'm a Dragons fan. He won us a premiership. I, I will never say a bad word against him. Uh, let, let's move on from Bennett. And and just before we turn to, to Broncos post-Super League, I, w- I want to spend a bit of time uh, looking at the Broncos branding and, and what about that made them different at that time? Oh, yeah. Look, the Broncos, no, it's, no team attracts brands and sponsors like them. Okay, So as an example, a modern-day example is Kia the uh, automotive brand and, and, and they left uh, the Bulldogs as their front front of jersey major sponsor to the Broncos. So almost uh, cheating on, on the Bulldogs and leaving to, you know, the, the better looking partner. Um, look, they've introduced some of the most unique jerseys to ever adorn a rugby league team. Um, you know, if you think back to 1998 and even 2002, they had a teal colored kit which was, you know, that um, sort of aquary type of color. There, there's an academic paper to be written on sports team's obsession <laughs> with teal from the, about yes. a five-year period in the late 90s. Yeah, the, even look, the Panthers even had a, a bit of a dalliance with that too. But It, uh, it works when Alonzo Mourning's wearing that yes. jersey for the Hornets, but beyond that. Well, look, speaking of, um, you know, the Hornets in America, you know, that teal colored kit was a creation of who? None other than our man, again, John Rebo. So he was behind it. My personal favorite was that um, diamonds? Yes. Design? So <laughs> let, let, let's stop stop right there because we've yeah. we've spent a, a lot of time over the course of our podcast arguing about this jersey. Uh, you have the floor. Tell me everything about that jersey. Okay. Well, look, it's it's frequently denigrated and defamed, but um, a true Bronco fan adores those two toned rhombuses, right? And it was actually the away kit for three years up until 1996. Um, I loved it. You know, it had that travel and um, sponsor across the front, and and it was just, it it was a mixture of rugby league to me and soccer. I just I felt, hold on, is this the English Premier League coming to to rugby league? And um, I just I felt like it was something that was so unique, so yet again we use the word so different, mm. and and so many purists will look at it and say, well, where's the chevron? Okay, well, you know what? Sometimes it, it's time to you know adopt new things into your way of operating and i i personally i i love that that diamonds design I, i'm with you but you talk about the the different designs they've had and the looking for something new does that hurt them long term where they've struggled to have a distinctive look like to me that diamonds jersey was their best chance at that uh look i think it depends on the perspective you're looking at it from so if you're talking about the roosters and they come up with some fancy pants diamonds design that distorts and dilutes their traditional look because they've got you know far more decades of history than the broncos do but the broncos they're a relatively modern club so they're not you know encumbered with that tradition and history so they can go out and do things a bit differently. It's it's an opportunity for them. So you know, over the years, I, my personal favorite's always been their Nike branding, um, because as I said before, I, I like the idea of America. I love the United States, and um, the idea that you know you've got this big multinational now that's that's producing their gear, um, that that just fascinated me. And and in a sense, rugby. Let's face it, rugby league merchandise was never cool. Right in in the seventies, in the eighties, in the nineties, if if your your teenager was wearing it and they're walking down the street, it was a fact that you know they're supporting their team, they're supporting their rugby league team, but it it never had that super uber cool trendy factor like you might have wearing a New York Yankees cap. So I just felt when Nike jumped on board with the Broncos, that kind of changed things a little bit. It made it a little bit more cool to wear that this type of gear. And particularly, you know, during that Super League era, it created a bit of a cult following. 
So, you know, youths, they adopted those American brands a lot more readily because it was Nike. And, and in fact, it, it was so hip. It was so hip to such a degree. I, I want to draw your attention to a curious illustration of um, a deviant subculture that, that Nike sort of um, produced across that Super League era. So in this sociological phenomena, there were packs of young Middle Eastern uh, men of Middle Eastern appearance that would shave their heads. They'd shave the back and sides just prior to kickoff, but they'd leave one thing ingrained in their heads, and that was a Nike tick at the back of it, right? And what that done was it ensured their, you know, their allegiance to Super League's apparel partner was clear to all those traveling Broncos fans on the Terry Lamb family hill. So, you know, it just so happened to be a very Bulldogs type of thing to do, but there was such an affiliation with that Nike branding at the time. It was so new to traditional rugby league fans to see, well, hold on, an American brand's jumping on board here. So... That Nike swoosh that was exhibited on each um, you know, fan's head, it, it didn't just make sure that any conservative fans felt intimidated, but it also ensured that this, this curious phenomena would be a great case study for um, anthropologists for years <laughs> to come. But does that always, like, it, okay, it works for the Broncos because they're a new organization. The, the counter to that to me is the West Tigers, who I think like have pretty much universally botched their jersey every year. Like you had these two great foundation clubs coming together, black, white, and orange. To me, like there's a definitive West Tigers jersey that they just haven't come up with. And there's always this chop and change and you've got random patches of black and white and orange like over them. Do you think a club like that would have benefited from adopting a more traditional look? I think the West Tigers had an opportunity to to ditch tradition because the way that they've tried to fuse two genuine organic bits of tradition into one new version of it is always going to fail. You, you can't have that. Now, I understand that the Dragons sort of, you know, they've kept their tradition with the Red V, but you know what? Um, it, with all due respect to, to, you know, your audience in Wollongong, the, the Steelers were the junior partner and um, they, they gave up a lot of their, you know, tradition and history in that merger. The West Tigers, the West Tigers had that very strong branding of the Tigers. They had that very iconic white chevron of the West Magpies. But trying to fuse those two powerful things together, that was not going to work. So I feel like they would have benefited from taking a, a Broncos versioned approach and adopting a more modern style. And what they've got at the moment is a bit of a hodgepodge of everything. Mm. I, I, I can't see, I, I don't identify uh, what they actually are. I, I just, they appear to me to be. Um, neither traditional nor modern. Yeah, I agree totally. Um, that that was a, a little aside. I don't want to get too bogged down in that. So, so what was your take on on who sided with the ARL and and who was with Super League? Well, look, uh, my take on it is that, and I hate to use the term, but Wogs they love Super League. Okay, so it, it tended to be a, a bit of an ethnic-based thing where I, I noticed sitting back and watching it all play out that there seemed to be an in, instant connection with the rebellious league of the Super League, you know, across those ethnic minorities. And I think I'll tell you what to make a great survey, and that would be if you've done one and, and respondents had to indicate whether they, they preferred ARL or Super League, but it was based on ethnicity. And I think without a doubt, it'll reveal a racial bias. And on average, I would say, on average... Anglos would trend towards the ARL and ethnic migrants, they'd trend towards the Super League. Do you think partly, though, that's based on those club ties? Like, obviously, the, the Bulldogs and, and the Lebanese community has, has obviously had that strong connection. And, and in general, the Bulldogs being a very multiculturally um, based team. 
Like, do you think if if all those fans were were Tigers fans, that would be less so? Yeah, that, that that's an interesting theory, an interesting way to look at it. Um, I I kind of feel like that might play a small part, but I think the major thing is that. People of an ethnic background, particularly European and, and Middle Eastern, um, they tend to think very differently to the traditional Anglo approach. There's a bit, a bit more of a defiant nature in their way of thinking, and in general, there seems to be a bit more of a, a support of rebellion, whether that be in business, whether that be in sport or otherwise. So, um, I wasn't surprised to see so many of those um, particular ethnic groups flock to the Super League, and um, of course. There's always going to be exceptions to the rule, but I'm only speaking from my perceptions and as a general trend. It's it's something uh, you've touched on in some of your episodes on the front office that um, you know that the kind of migrant uh, connection and how that changes an administrative outlook. So I, I recommend everyone um, digging into those episodes. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I, the main idea and the concept was that our current um, chairman Peter Valandi seems to operate in a very um, defiant and bullish approach and 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 I kind of attribute a lot of that to his um, ethnic background and and his uh, management style you know uh, playing out that uh, that cultural sort of perspective I, I think you've got your next in-depth article because I'd, I'd love to see something um, you know someone go into great lengths to, to research that and look into it yeah we'll see how we go <laughs> Let's turn back to the Broncos on the field uh, throughout the 90s. What what about their style was particularly different or that, that stands out to you? Oh, look, it's it's no surprise um, to, to most of your audience and, and, and listeners. Um, you know, their, their play was adventurous and it was entertaining and, and they scored a lot of points. So their average is over 22.9 points per game. And, you know... All clubs average is seventeen point six, so they're significantly ahead of most clubs. So, sorry, is that the all time average? All time, all time, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, they're doing significantly better than most. So, they tend to score the most points against the Tigers. The average against the Tigers is over twenty six, and the least is actually against the Storm, and that's not a surprise. But yeah, in terms of their um, playing style, it was probably at its peak in the era when they were playing at QE two Stadium. So if you want to talk about win rates, when they played at QE2, they were winning over 79.5% of their games. It was extraordinary. The other thing is about the Broncos, they've actually got the lowest average penalties, both for and against, of all time. So they actually only average 5.9 penalties, and against, they only get um, 6.02. So to consider that, what that does is it means you're going to have a free-flowing game. Uh, this is well before the advent of the six again rule that we're seeing this year. Um, you know, they epitomize that idea of exciting free-flowing football. Um, and if you want a comparison, juxtapose, you know, their, their penalty count of around six per game to the Newtown Jets who averaged 11.2 penalties against them per game. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine sort of, um, you know, just how many stoppages that those Jets fixtures would have had. I'm not a fan of the Broncos themselves, but I'm a fan, I'm a fan of their uh, enterprising play. So what about the let's let's put put the the, the two eras against each other and and is there a significant difference you know between say the late nineties and the early nineties or which do you think is is the better team? Uh look, I think quite often when you're talking about the debate of the best team, you know, of the modern era, we'll say the modern era, we're talking maybe let's say the eighties onwards. Um, you've got the Parramatta Eels argument, you've got the Canberra Raiders of ninety four. It tends to be the case, even though the Broncos um, scored 
successive premierships in 92 and 93. It seems to be the case that 98 comes out as the year of, you know, the best ever Broncos team. So what I done was I put them side by side, that 98 team with the 1997 team. And my theory is that the 97 Super League team was actually superior to the 98 team. And I think people don't really consider that Super League team because of the lack of competition in that year. So obviously there was only 10 teams in the Super League and it stands to reason that naturally, inherently, we're going to assume that they're not as good as the 98 Broncos because, you know, the 98 Broncos played against a lot more teams. But that that argument doesn't really stack up. You know, is Roger Federer a worse uh, tennis player if Rafael Nadal's not around? No, I think not. It's so long as his, his um, performance is just as good or better. And it's irrelevant if you've got your opposition numbers down to 10 teams. And what I done was I collated how many points they'd scored for and against, and they stacked up relatively evenly. So then I went into their actual squads in the grand final itself. And what I found was, despite a few positional changes here and there, in general, their team was almost identical besides three players. So I'm going to name these three players to you. And I'm going to get you to compare them and give me your um, sort of perspective on it from 97 to 98. So in 1997, the three players that they had that were unique to 98 were Ben Walker, Peter Ryan, and Anthony Mundine. In 98, it was Philip Lee, Kevin Campion, and Pedro Sivanesiva. So let's break it down. What's your memory of those three from 98? Philip Lee, Kevin Campion, and Pedro Sivanesiva. Well, um Obviously, one of those stands out as as one of the the greats of the NRL era in in Petro Sivanesiva. I, I think he's uh, in the top handful of front front rowers I've seen. Uh, long distinguished career, but I mean the one that really stands out for me uh, is Kevin Campion. Uh, Long time listeners of our show will know that we're uh, huge Kevin Campion fans here. I've got a very personal connection with him uh, from being on that '96 Dragons team. Uh, to me, Kevin Campion is. You almost you need a type like that in your team. Yeah, Kevin Campion was, uh, you know, the ultimate professional. Everything was about consistency in his in his game, and you know that that often used um, adage, you know, about um, you know that their best game wasn't far from their worst. Um, that really applies to Kevin Campion. Philip Lee was. What was your take on him? <laughs> I, I remember the name. I don't don't have many other memories. Yeah, I can tell you, he played a hundred plus fixtures. So he did. You know, he played across seven seasons. But in general, those three as a group, I would I would label Philip Lee as you know a, a solid first grader. I'd say Kevin Campion was long term consistent, and I'd say the standout there was Sivanasiva with 300-plus games. Mm. Now, let's juxtapose that with the 97 Super League Broncos, the the forgotten team of in the debate of best of all time. And we'll go through them. We've got Ben Walker, Peter Ryan, and Anthony Mundine. What's your perspective on those three? So, I'm a St. George man, Anthony Mundine. Uh, I, I'm a, a long-term defender of, of Chalk, d- despite some of his uh, idiotic statements. I think uh, he was a great player. If he'd have stayed in the game, I think he would have had the representative career that he, you know, was crying out he deserved. You know, I, th- yeah. I think it, it, it was coming to him if he'd stuck around, you know, not getting into all the other reasons for it, both his fault and otherwise. I didn't watch Super League. I, I you know, was one of those people that boycotted Super League. So, <laughs> um, so 
I, I took a very like a, a an interest in his progression in Super League, yeah. you know, because obviously I didn't want him to leave the the Dragons, uh, and as subsequently was proven, I think the Dragons was his best fit. So my memories of him during Super League was there was this positional debate. There was always talk about, you know, they were playing him at centers and and whether he was effective there, you know, whether maybe he should have been playing at 5'8", you know. So I, I can only really talk um, from from a very outsider's perspective of that, having, you know, not watched him play for the Broncos. Yeah, look, Mundine is, I guess, judged a lot for the fact of the lack of quantity of games that he played when he, you know, walked away and chose boxing as a career. But in terms of the actual quality of the games that he played, and, and that's how I can only assess this. When I'm looking at the best of all time, I'm not looking at them as the best of all time across all those years. I'm looking at them for that particular individual year. So you can't look at it with you know a, a quantity perspective, but rather a quality perspective. So to me, Anthony Mundine was just superb. And, and I was not a Dragons fan. I was not a Broncos fan. And and I would sit back and just marvel at, you know, it was just, it was amazing. Some of the athleticism and, and, and another factor was his ball skills were just so exquisite and very underrated across those years. So he actually played three origins, um, admittedly off the bench, but, you know, he scored a lot of tries. Um, and then the other two in that list, are Peter Ryan, who, you know, they, they called Trevor Gilmeister the axe. I mean, the way this guy tackled, Peter Ryan was an absolute brute in defense. He would punish opposition. I'm, I'm actually surprised he was going that long. When, when What was his last year at the Broncos? Yeah, so his last year was 1999. Yeah, right. And yeah, so he played just shy of 150 games. But the thing about Peter Ryan, and, and a lot of people might say, oh, well, this is just um, coincidence. But, but coincidences don't happen when you're talking about 150 games odd. So Peter Ryan, his win rate was over 74%. And to give you a context, as an individual player I'm talking about here, to give you a context, that's the fifth highest of any player in the last 40 years. Mm. Pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, so Peter Ryan to me was just an absolute gun in the forward pack. And the other player there on that list is Ben Walker. And Ben Walker played, you know, Quite a few games, 135 across many clubs, 41 tries, 300 goals, and his kicking rate was just shy of 80%. So, you know, to me, those three are on their day a better, higher quality group of players than the um, previous three, being Philip Lee, Kevin Campion, and Pedro Siva. So I know then uh, the way I'd say is this, the 98 squad would be more consistent, more reliable, Whereas the 97 squad were on their day the most brilliant by far. It's funny because to me, 98, it was so like, it was such a crazy year and such a um, strange year to get a sense of who was the gun team because the year before, obviously, the two Cobbs. So a lot of the talk during the year was, you know, is it Brisbane? Is it Newcastle? We won't really know, you know, until it, it all plays out, which it did in the Broncos' favour. To me, the, the team that stands out is the 2000 team where it seems there was little doubt that they were going to win the comp like from the start, like they were just the team. The big downside to that is, which I guess shows their organisational strength, that's the the year where they didn't have Alf. You know, they had Kevin Walters playing halfback and Ben Eichen playing 5'8". So you're seeing like a loss of some of that aura, but to me, like that was the team where I didn't have any doubt that they were going to win the comp that year. Yeah, I, the way I view it is um, with the year 2000, that, that squad... 
um, seem to be a bit more of a consistent-based team, uh, a bit more of an academic team, so to speak. So if you think of um, Ben Eichen at, at 5'8", he was, a, he was a thinking player. Okay, He, he didn't have that, have that athletic ability of his opponents and he didn't have that stardust element of um, an Alan Langer. But what he did do was he was very creative in his mind and he played a game of tactics and strategy. So as good as the 2000 squad were, it was a unique year. So if you remember, obviously, we had the Sydney Olympics and that meant that the um, the season was brought forward. And I, I'm pretty sure from memory, we had an, an August grand final. Is that right? It, it seems right, yeah. yeah. So it was definitely um, ahead of schedule um, to you know facilitate for the, the um, Sydney Olympics to be played at, at Homebush. But in terms of the better squad, 97, 98, 2000, uh, my mindset is that the Super League team in 97 was far superior and the only thing which sort of precludes many from even considering their their excellence is just the fact that they were playing in a 10-team comp. Yeah. So, you know, that shouldn't preclude them from being part of the equation when it comes to assessing the best team of the modern era. All right. Well, we might put that to the listeners and, and get some, some of your feedback on, on which team you consider the best. Uh, just to finish up, I want to look at the Broncos today and, and you've you know written some articles recently. You mentioned it in, in your dealing with the Broncos media manager and, and we also talked about a loss of aura. So looking at the Broncos in 2020, what's happened and is there a way back to what they had in the 90s? Yeah, most definitely there's a way back there. They're actually primed for success. So I've been doing a lot of um, data analytics lately and just assessing exactly where they are in the premiership cycle. They're set for success. They're they're not a team that's going to be failing into the future. But the thing is, they're missing a couple of those key and crucial elements that always led to their success. One being that stardust element. So... You know, their players, they've they've decided to recruit very consistent type players. But the other thing is about their roster, they've decided to go down the path of having a, a roster which is um, top heavy in forward star power, forward strength. But historically, the Broncos have always been an attacking team. Okay, So encumbering your cap with many talented forwards is only going to be at the cost of having or maybe diluting the strength and quality of your backline or most notably your halves. So what I've seen is that their coach has recruited Brodie Croft from the Melbourne Storm. Now, with all due respect to Brodie Croft, who's a very um, uh, competent first grader, he has the capacity to execute the game plan that Anthony Seabold you know, dictates. He understands game plans. But that's just conventional. That's just, you know, conservative. Whereas the Broncos of the past, they'd go out and get the best young young gun halfback that's out there, the likes of an Alfie Langer. And even if he doesn't have that size to him, so long as he's got the requisite attributes in terms of attack, they'll recruit him, they'll hire him, and they'll bring him across. And, you know, a lot of their scoring will come off the back of that type of a player. Uh, At the moment, they're getting a lot of these players who are, quality forwards, but not so much looking at, you know, having a superstar fullback, a superstar halfback. And to be quite frank, Anthony Milford has just not done the trick and it's high time. It's, well, I guess it's it's time to make a move there. A couple of really interesting points to hit on there. One of them is just that direct comparison to Bennett and he's famous and it's something he's backtracked on in recent years, says it, it was a bit of a myth, uh, but he's famous for not paying forwards 
in, in that, you know, that great Broncos era. Yes. So it's kind of like a real reversal of that philosophy. Just on Milford, it, it's it's interesting because from what you're saying, Milford could have very well been that guy, that the small guy, the small creative guy, instinctive. And if you look at the Broncos in 2015, when you had him and, and Ben Hunt together, um, both playing brilliant football, they, they were so fun to watch together. Uh, and it, it all kind of, you know, fell apart for, for multiple reasons. But I guess the other thing uh, that, you know, I want to consider is it, it's easy to say, you know, they went and got players like Alfie Langer, but there's only so many Alfie Langers out there. You know, you can't just go out and grab a player and make him this generational star. No, but what made them that player was the creative thinking behind getting a player there in the first place. Mm. And the Broncos today are not creative. So I'll give you I'll give you another example just to sort of illustrate my point. So the six again rule, it's completely changed the fabric of, of the way the game's played, okay? So we've got a lot more eyes up football being played. We've got a lot more creativity. We've got a lot more open space. And what's happened is that the successful teams, they've adopted a lock forward, which is far more creative. And, you know, speaking of the 90s, it's reverted back to a retro-styled lock forward. And if you remember back in the 90s, you had the likes of Brett Kenny, Terry Lamb, Cliff Lyons, Brad Fittler, the list goes on, where they all shifted to lock forward. It was a creative position. It was not a big brute forward position. And with the way the game changed over the years, that lock, that number 13 became became a bit of a battering ram position. And so the years progressed. But now with the changing rules, the game's gone back. It's gone back to the future again, hasn't it? And the idea is that having a creative lock forward, which is smaller in stature, the likes of Victor Radley, the likes of Cameron Murray and so forth, you know, all the creative ones. Jake Trebojevic is very creative. He doesn't play the role of a battering ram. And if you think about it, there's only really four clubs which play with that creative lock forward. The rest still have that old traditional battering ram type of number 13. So of those four clubs, let's have a look at who their coaches are. You go through, you got the big four. Des Hasler, Wayne Bennett, Trent Robinson, Craig Bellamy. It's no surprise to me. They're, they're forward thinking. They're creative. And that's something which is lacking at the Broncos. I understand there's only so many lock forwards out there. I understand there's only so many, you know, stardust type of halfbacks out there. But the idea is to get creative. I'll give you an example. If I'm at the Bulldogs right now, I say, Kieran, your legs are slowing down. The game's opened up. You're playing 13. And that's the idea. That's the concept behind being creative. Love it. Uh, in our first episode, I talked about the the evolution of the lock forward position. And I think no position in the game has changed in so many ways over so many different eras. Uh, and I've long lamented the the battering ram, the 80-minute the prop, the, the way that position was used. So I'm, I'm really loving like seeing the way it's shifted back to what you're talking about. Uh, I'll just put it to you with... Uh, St. George playing Cameron McInnes at lock forward last night as we're recording this. Does Paul McGregor become part of a big five of coaches? <laughs> uh, let's let's give him um let's give him the season sort of to to get off, you know, to get out of the bottom eight, uh, and then we'll talk. But look, um it's a smart move. It's a smart move. Um Dale Finucan at the storm plays that creative type of role, but then what happens is Brandon Smith gets shifted there. See? So it's slowly cottoning on to some of these other coaches that, hold on, that's the way to play the game. You're never going to win being better. You're going to win being different. 
Okay, we keep saying it, whether it's the front office, whether it's on field, you need to be different. Even the big businesses, right? Google only became successful off the back of changing the algorithm to, to you know, give you your search results based on users' choices, previous users' choices. That was their data that they used rather than the other um, search engines, which were just spitting out a result based on the word that you've typed in. Simple as that. So you want to be different. And when it comes to the lock forward position, you need to value it. You need to place it in your mindset as part of the spine. You know, in fact, I'm writing my next piece at the moment for um for Fox Sports, and and I've spoken to a couple of um, forwards, and one being one of the best lock forwards of the '90s in Jim Dimmick, and I spoke to him about that position of lock forward changing, and 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 could it be considered now? part of the spine and most definitely he says he can another is luke lewis who i've spoken to as well and you know when things change on the pitch when the dynamics change you then need to change the terminology that we use when we're labeling some of these um positions or sort of concepts in rugby league and and one of those concepts is the spine i mean what's the spine what what does that mean it just basically means that everything comes from it. That's the creative positions, the one, six, seven, nine. Well, you know what? Now the 13 is part of it. Mm. So, yeah, it stands to reason that elevating that position of 13 and giving it that sort of glamour element. And perhaps if you're uh, Anthony Seabold turning around saying, Jack, Jack Bird, you're a great player. You've done your knee. You've slowed down. You're creative. You've got a kicking game. You've got ball skills. Here's the 13. Let's see how you go. Yeah. Uh, I love it. And it goes back to, to being different, thinking about outside the box. So I think that brings us full circle. Uh, so we'll wrap it up there. This this has been a really uh, enjoyable conversation, Rami. So thanks for being with me today. Love being on. Yeah, this, this was great. And I hope for the listeners, this uh, gives you a, a nice example of, of what, what we'll be trying to do with these case studies uh, over the next couple of months. I'll be doing some. Andrew will be doing some. Uh, we, we've got a lot of uh, really fun stuff coming up. So, um, yeah, once again, Rami, thank you so much for joining me. Not a problem. Really enjoyed being here.